Hi there. I'm Francoise Von Trapp, and this is the 3D Insights Podcast. The chip shortage continues to be a hot topic in the mainstream media, so we thought we'd continue on with our conversation. Today, I'm joined by Bharat Kapoor, lead partner of the Americas at Carney Global Strategy and Management Consulting Firm. And we're talking about a white paper his group recently published called Why a Resilient Semiconductor Supply Chain is Imperative and How to Create One. First, a little background. Bharat's journey into electrical engineering began in a small Himalayan town where he grew up. He tells me that when he was in the third grade, they learned how to make transformers. And so he tried it at home and almost burned his house down. So from repairing toys as a child to building one of the first smartphones at Motorola to his current work as a partner in Carney's operations and performance practice, Barack continues to live out his passion for engineering and design. He interrupted his holiday in Hawaii to talk to me about where he sees the industry going and offered some tips on what we can do to ensure a robust future. Thank you, Bharat. Welcome, and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Francois. Um, so just to get started, can you give us kind of a high-level overview of what the paper is about and what some of the findings were? Francois, the whole idea about semiconductors and the supply chain now is in the press and even making evening news because it's hurting or impacting the common person. I'd say pretty much all 7 billion people on the planet. That's why we start talking about it. But for the people who have been in the know of it, this issue has been there. It's just that it hasn't been so pronounced that everybody is seeing it. Now, why did it happen? Started with COVID, a bullwhip effect, and now everybody gets to see it. There are multiple factors. It's not just COVID. COVID just accentuated it. The demand was already increasing. Mm -hmm. Secondly, COVID scared everybody to death when it happened because nobody knew how the world was going to react. Will it be 2008 again? Will it be 2000 again? I don't even know the ones before that. And then some people took cash preservation approaches. Some people took more risk-averse approaches. And then suddenly, a quarter, two quarters in, we see that the demand starts peaking up across most of the sectors. And it peaked up so much that, the, the, say, the semiconductor manufacturers just didn't have enough capacity to meet it. Now, if that was not enough, when uh, demand starts increasing and supplies start getting constrained, a lot of people want to build buffer stocks. So those orders came in. So if the demand increase wasn't enough, now we have this, I, I would say, like, buffer demand coming in. Now that messed up the whole ecosystem completely. And now we are seeing this in the press that some auto company is shutting down its factory for X amount of months. Some other companies cannot produce uh, some products. Now there is something to be learned out there. There are certain industries that are not feeling the brunt or at least right away because they know how to manage the supply chains better uh, given they have been in this space for a long time. So happy to delve more into it as we progress. Um, I have so many questions. Just as you're speaking, um, thinking of recent conferences I've been attending, and one of the concerns I'm hearing is that, you know, are we going to be in danger of overcapacity? And when you're talking about double orders and double ordering, is that something we should be concerned about as an industry? Little bit. I wouldn't worry too much about that. So why do I say this? And this may even sound that, hey, why are you not so much worried about it? So first of all, we have to look at this industry. We're talking in, in terms of decades, not years. Mm 
the life of fabs is way beyond a decade secondly the capital investments are massive these are not like some things you can make a decision today and say 3 months from now 6 months from now or typically what we say 18 month cycle to product you can produce it doesn't work like that it'll take good 3 4 years to actually get a fab started then maybe a year or so to stabilize that and then finally you see the products that can be used and you are not you are not making that decision to serve the 6th year you are making that decision to serve the next 15 20 years from those fabs having said that this industry is cyclical if you look at our paper you'll see cyclicity out there mm-hmm. um so i'm not too worried about it that for a little bit we run into some extra capacity because it's going to get covered over time and why do i say that that's my third most important point if you look at if you google anything data growth over the last 10 years or so you'll find so many studies that have been done but here is the intriguing thing that uh, excites me every 2 years the amount of data produced is doubling for the last decade or so and it's not going to stop generally when disruptive innovations or disruptive growths happen they don't go linear they are not like 10% to 10% they are exponential they double and one thing we are seeing is the data is doubling every 2 years so how does that get connected you need the chips to mm-hmm. produce the data to manage the data and to move the data and if the data is getting produced it's going to getting keep getting produced more and more and you'll need chips now it's not one kind of a chip there is a chip that costs a dollar there are chips that cost thousands of dollars they all do the same thing they produce data they move data they store data so whereas many semiconductor semiconductor manufacturers are used to the cycle um that seems to be changing with the increase in data in general i mean we we keep hearing about a digital transformation and mm-hmm. how that is impacting the industry beyond just this current chip shortage you're absolutely right in fact the the current fab um expansion really can't fix what's happening immediately no, it can't uh that there is no fix to it uh and i as i put it there are only two ways the current shortage in the short term gets fixed either the demand vanishes which nobody will like because it's not good for the economy and i don't think that is feasible because the demand is not some fashion or a fad right now it's a real demand if you look at it we are trying to put iot devices home security cameras industrial security cameras sensors we talk about these all the time we talk about track tracking traceability rfid name it like you know all these buzzwords when you cut through the chase they all need a chip to make them work because they all produce data they do something with the data they have to send the data somewhere and when the data is received somewhere they have to do something what we like to call analytics or artificial intelligence or machine learning it all requires the chips so it's going to keep growing and that's why uh, you know in the short run there is no fix for that uh, now companies are generally running at full capacity and look it makes sense for these fabs to run at full capacity given the massive capital investments they make so they have to recoup it as soon as you can right now there is not a whole lot they can do but they are adding more and more capacity uh, some will come in sh- in the sooner uh, time frame say maybe 12 months 15 months uh, if you are talking about brand new fabs that's at least 3 4 years away that's not going to solve this problem right now but it's the right thing to do because we, this is not the first time last time we're going to see this problem uh it may not be right. covid it may be something else we're going to see it. and the demand is increasing that's a bigger factor i mean when your barbie barbie you know when your barbie dolls have chips in it that tells you we are living in a different world 
who would have thought 10 years ago that we'll have Barbies uh, walking around with uh, chips in them? Well, they're not walking around though, are they? <laughs> well, <laughs> or they might the, be. They might yes. be. Right? <laughs> <laughs> if you put chips in them, that would be, oh, that would be frightening. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, so what about, you know, one of the concerns I'm also hearing though is we're adding all of these fabs, but there's a big talent shortage. And I did, you know, I looked through the paper um, quickly and I didn't see that you addressed the concern about a talent shortage. Is that something? That's a good point you actually bring up. Um, and uh, that's a good pointer. And as we do our next version of it, we'll probably address that too. But you also have to look at talent in a little bit different realm, right? And I tell you a quick story, and then I'll give you why that story is meaningful. So one of my uh, you know, very dear friends uh, from college works for a foundry, uh, and we were just having chats. He sends a message to our common friend, a uh, professor at the leading engineering school. He's like, send me engineers. He's like, give me a job description. People are not just going to show up. He's like, I don't care. Just send me engineers. Now, what does that tell you? We don't have the discipline where people are being trained to become semiconductor or foundry experts. You know, material people may learn a little bit about wafers here and there, but it's a lot of apprenticeship that happens on the, the in what we call the fabs or the foundries or the manufacturing floors, where, you know, people who have been in the job for 20, 30 years, they take young engineers under their wings, they train them and they grow them and they go from, you know, your frontline process engineers to, um, you know, more advanced, uh, working on more advanced uh, technologies. And as you are bringing in newer uh, technologies or what are called nodes, these advanced and more experienced folks will work on them. It's, it, it's a very, uh, how would I say, very niche, but very specialized um, skill set that you need or talent that gets groomed inside the firm rather than in just colleges. So to a, to a matter, yes, we'll have a talent issue. But I also see it, there are enough experienced folks out there. there. Okay, there are never enough experienced folks, the right people. You can never hire the right people. But there are enough people who can train the younger generation by taking them under their wings. And having more of these fabs come up, that's what's going to help um, grow more of those people. So in a sense, I'm not too worried about it because the precedent exists, how to grow people in the industry. Uh, but yes, talent will, will be an issue. I think that's one of the good things about finally the semiconductor industry is in the mainstream media. I didn't know myself when I took my first job, what I was getting into. So I think this overall, this is going to be good for the industry that we have such a focus. Um, now I know um, for instance, in the recent news, let's talk a little bit about um, the U S the U S government finally focusing on the importance of semiconductors mm -hmm. and the concept of, reshoring and um, I think there's a lot there. There's the reshoring, there's a $50 billion, they just passed, did we say $50 billion budget for semiconductor research or overall? It's overall for the semiconductor growth of the semiconductor industry or building competitiveness back in the semiconductor industry. So do you think this is, is this too little too late or is this good news or what's your perspective? I would agree it's late, but you've got to understand the context behind late. Um, is it good? Absolutely. Um, it was overdue. Um, very, uh, very happy that finally the, uh, the, the 
U.S. government passed this and the monies are going to be made available to bring competitiveness back. This is a very complicated onion and I'll help you help kind of peel it for you. One, we have to understand why we are at this situation. Two, why this money is important and how is this money way more important than the 50 billion for the semiconductor industry? Because, you know, some other industry could say like, hey, why not me? So we got to understand we lived in a generation where the only way we knew high tech was produced by outsourcing it to lower cost countries. Now that's coming to bite us a little bit because semiconductor or high tech is not just your TVs and computers. They also define the competitiveness of your nation. If you look at it, what makes a nation great or makes a power, it's not just your nukes. Uh, there are a lot of countries who don't have food but they have nukes. What we have here, what we need here is the ability to produce or manufacture and the technology to, uh, to, to produce it. That, in my opinion, creates the real competitiveness of a nation. And third is talent, which some could argue that it could be imported. America is a shining example of importing talent and making things happen with that. So if you look at all of that in this context, um, yes, we are late. It's never uh, too little, too late. Uh, we have to build this competitiveness, not just from a perspective of chips or for that matter, Barbie dolls or cell phones or, um, or, or our computers, but this kind of defines the competitiveness of our nation and our ability to export. Uh, because how much, the, the, if you look at income statements of the high-tech companies, they live in a very different space. I mean, if you go back say 15 years, the biggest companies used to be the petroleum companies. Mm -hmm. Now, if you look at, nobody would have thought like there will be trillion dollar companies. If you look at the top 10 uh, companies, all kind of creeping into the trillion dollar space, they're all tech companies. There is a reason for that. And that's why I feel this monies are super important. And it's not just US. India started this about two, three years ago with their production linked incentives, about 6 billion for phones. And they've recently um, uh, put out a large number for about 12 other industries. Uh, and I'm sure Europe is going to be not too far behind uh, because at the end of the day, mm -hmm. they're also trying to have their self-sufficiency or at least uh, advantage in manufacturing. Some of them they are known for. And irrespective of the fact what they were known for, those industries are also relying upon chips now. Do you think, you know, it seems like the global um, geopolitical climate, we see a trend towards nationalization of semiconductor supply chain. Um, for instance, with the U.S., with, with China, um, is this potentially going to, would, could this potentially harm our industry if that trend continues? That's a very complicated question in a sense. First of all, we have to understand China is not a major player in the semiconductor value chain right now. Mm -hmm. And they also know that. But one thing that you have to respect China for is when they kind of put, uh, when they believe that they have to do something, they just go relentlessly after that. Mm -hmm. And they have openly said that, that they want to be self-reliant in the semiconductor space. We don't want to be reliant on others. Mm -hmm. And by 2025, we would have 70% of high tech, which will be internal to us. Uh, I'll even share a joke. Once I was at the Great Wall and our tour guide said, hey, look, we're really good at reverse engineering everything. The only two things we haven't done is Boeing, which was uh, a proxy for airplanes and semiconductors. I guess they figured out how to make planes. Uh, now the question is semiconductors, how long? They're, 
they're a very talented uh, you know country and uh, they're working hard on it uh, now comes the question about trade and all the kind of stuff look collaboration works till the point when it's benefiting everybody mm-hmm. but when nations have this notion of being the leader the competition will come into picture and collaborations will stop at the end of the day it all become comes to economics mm-hmm. right like we have the apples and the googles ruling the the phone world uh other countries have tried some have been semi successful some not so successful but there is a lot of money that these companies make it's pure economics 101 why would somebody not want to enter a space where there are positive profits mm-hmm. to be had same goes for semiconductors given how much it's supposed to grow we are throwing numbers around 500 to 600 billion that is in my opinion is just the starting point decade out we are going to be talking multi trillions in there wow. why would somebody want to leave money on the table you look at income statement of these semiconductor companies they make healthy net margins and if or in economic terms we would say positive profits and if there are pro- positive profits to be had people will come in now why do we talk about countries and not companies because of the massive investments that are required and the implications of having a robust semiconductor uh, say ecosystem or semiconductor supply chain in your own sovereign borders gives you a lot more power than not yeah i've always felt from a long way back um when i first got into this industry i was i was always um, amazed at how well um the semiconductor industry managed its collaboration across borders and how politics was not part of it and i always felt like the governments of the world could take a lesson from the semiconductor industry because to really function we need to work together across the world um and everybody contributes and everybody benefits but maybe i'm naive but <laughs> no there was there is some truth to it right like if you go back 10 15 years ago we needed a lot of capital to get these things started see it's the last 10 10 decades when we feel like we carry billion dollar bills in the back of our pocket back in the day billion dollars used to be a lot of money um, from a business perspective mm-hmm. so putting fabs was not that easy it required a lot of uh, cash a lot of capital and then you had to amortize it and the only way you could amortize it that if you were supplying to the whole market which is the entire planet now that may not be the case because the demand is so much that we can afford to have multiple fabs and have multiple even regional or national fabs which are only supplying to a smaller market and still be profitable out there it's just a matter of how the industry has grown so now let's let's get back to the paper a little bit um i think in the paper you offer tips mm-hmm. um could you give us like a high level overview of of what you you know your recommendations so look so one thing um specifically around the paper we talk about supply chain resiliency and that goes both uh supplying to the industries from the semiconductors and the semiconductor industry itself uh the some of the things we look at is the geography of uh, um all these fabs and tie that to geopolitical risks if you look at it there are clusters around where certain things are done a quick simple uh, search will tell you that majority of the wafers which is the underlying um, raw material starts are 
concentrated in a very few countries on the eastern side of the globe. Um, U.S. back in the day used to be in the 30s and 40 percent. Now we are down to like 10, 12 percent or so. Those risks have to be mitigated, not because we feel there will be some massive geopolitical upheavals out there, but just in case something were to happen, even a natural disaster or something, that could bring the entire globe to its knees. I mean, we talk about COVID bringing us to the knees. Think about semiconductor supply chain shutting down. We will not have water in our taps because our waters are controlled by chips. Our power is controlled by chips at the end of the day. It is, it's going to be that drastic if we can't find the replacements for some of the things out there. That is why geographic diversification is important. And that's why I'd say why U.S. is putting money out there on the table. India is trying to get into the mix. EU wants to put money out there. China has already said that we want to be self-sufficient. We'll invest into it. I mean, a tiny island of Taiwan pretty much controls our lifeline right now. Right. Um, I'm not, uh, I mean, it's a great country. But the question is, what if a big earthquake happens? Then what do we do? So this is kind of the geopolitical and, you know, kind of tying both of them. Second is the planning aspect of it. Look, planning is a, is, is a very complicated process. Historically, it's generally relied upon trends or historical things. I'd say we have to relook at planning from a future perspective. What we used to call as scenario plans and things like that and left it to the strategists I think the planners also have to look at it because this whole mess that happened with the chips, people could have also predicted a great uh, demand surge scenario and planned for that if they would have really tracked how the data growth is happening. I'm sure some have done it. They are doing well. The people who haven't done it, they are suffering from that. Uh, those would be, you know, the couple of things that you can do internally, then comes working with your own suppliers. You can't treat your suppliers as contractual obligations. You've got to understand how the supplier operates, how their supplier operates, what the risks are on that side, what we like to call multi-tiered risk assessment. Um, you know, and then finally, slowly and steadily, incorporating more and more of the cutting-edge technologies, like what you may want to call it industry 4.0 technologies, and bring that into your value chain. Uh, I think the industry does a pretty good job with product platforming, which is another element of our supply chain resiliency. That is, how can you commonize a lot of things and produce a lot of different things? And I like to take the example of Legos, right? Created back in the 40s, they are still paying the dividends. Um, my kid, when we were small, would take me to the store. I want a ship. I want a boat. I want a car. And one day I just sat and said, how much commonality happens in there? And we did a research. I think the numbers is staggering. Like there are common Legos among all the boxes and it's a perfect, perfect way for most industries to learn from it. So those would be, you know, few of the tips, as you say, uh, that uh, people should think about or strategies think people should deploy. Um, you, you mentioned the reason for geographical diversification and, um, you know, pointing to Taiwan. So let's, you know, TSMC is now expanding into the United States planning this gigafab in yes. Arizona, right in my backyard, um, mm -hmm. along with Intel. Is that part of that approach? Is that is that one reason for them to expand into other regions? I would, I would believe that. I would definitely believe that. And also, I would say being able to supply to some critical infrastructures in the United States that may not want uh, some of the chips to be reliant on other countries, uh, those would be the reasons uh, for something somebody like a TSMC to come to U.S. 
And we also have Intel. Uh, Pat Gilsinger um, recently you know, released or introduced this, the IDM 2.0 strategy for manufacturing. Do you, um, do you think, can you speak to that a little bit? Do you think it will be successful and why or why not? I think it has to be successful. Uh, well, I mean, Intel has to be successful. And the reason for that is it goes beyond Intel as a company and the ticker INTC. Uh, Intel has been the backbone of US competitiveness for a long, long time. I mean, we've been powering the world for a long time. It's kind of, you know, the the nuts and bolts and the, uh, the, the, the how would I say, um, the, the engine oil that nobody cares about, but it keeps your motor running. Intel has been that motor for a long time. So uh, the IDM2, I think, is the right thing to do. Um, and there were even clamors at some point of time that Intel should get out of manufacturing. I would have thought that would be the end of Intel, uh, per se. Intel's uh, uh, dominance comes from its ability to manufacture a lot. Yes, and people could say that, hey, they've fallen behind some others. Sure, they have. Uh, but it's, you know, in the life of a company, you don't hit home runs every single time you come to the bat. You know, sometimes you have a bunch, sometimes you do strike out, but that doesn't mean that you are a useless player. You come back again and you kind of swing the bat again and uh, go for a grand slam after that. So, uh, and again, it's important for the competitive of US, competitiveness of US itself um, in the technology space. If you look at most of the other highly valued semiconductor companies in the US, they are fabulous. They don't have the ability to manufacture, so they have to rely upon others. And now having a TSMC in Arizona, um, Intel starting its foundry business, I think that should definitely help and help especially with the resiliency that at least uh, the U.S. companies, be it Apple, be it Qualcomm, be it NVIDIA, they'll have multiple choices. And it'll be good for the industry. Yeah. Okay, so I have a couple of questions that were submitted to me by some of my listeners. Does it make sense for the U.S. to continue to support lower technology, such as above 14 nanometer, um, overseas, um, and then concentrating investments at 10 nanometer and below in the, UN in the U.S. as a strategy? Uh, I don't uh, subscribe to that uh, school of thought. Logic, in a sense, it does make sense that you should invest in the latest technology, not the older ones. But, you know, I would use an analogy of, um, let's say, cars uh, per se. You know, you have a car that goes from zero to 60 in, say, 10 seconds. Then you have another car that goes from zero to 60 in five seconds. And now we have cars that can go to zero to 60 in 1.1 second. Why would you want to only invest in a car that goes from one, uh, one, zero to 60 in 1.1 second? when a zero to uh, 16, 10 seconds is a very good car that is good enough to take you to a grocery store, to mm -hmm. take you to, um, you, you know, your drop your kids at school, et cetera, et cetera. You don't have to be drag racing every single time you're on the road. Why do I use this analogy is because even the lower nodes, even the 14 nanometer nodes and all, we're still building chips on them. They are as important, you know, for our 5G, for our power management, for our autonomous driving, things like that. And even if we get to things like smart home and all the kind of stuff, do they really need these very high-end dense technologies? Not really. You need them for, could you do it? Yes. Like It's kind of like giving you a $500 super awesome Japanese sushi knife and you start cutting broccoli with that. Could you cut it? Of course you could cut it. But why would you want to do that? You could just use a $5 knife to cut broccoli with that. So I'd say uh, I don't subscribe to that. The investments have to be across the board because here is the problem. 
problem is not your high-end chips right now. It's your low-end chips that are creating trouble. Right. So if you're talking about resiliency, you have to think about everything. I'll make a simple example. You make a beautiful dish and you have no salt because it's the cheapest product in your kitchen. What are you going to do? That food is waste. Nobody's going to like it. If you're missing one single component for a car, the car, those automobiles are sitting on the line. They can't be shipped. They can't be because they're waiting for that one item. And that might be an older technology node item. I'll, I'll give you even a better example. We were talking in dollars. We are going to go into fractions of cents. Three, four years ago, we had a massive shortage of capacitors called the MLCs. Mm. Those things generally cost you about six, seven dollars for a reel of 5,000. Oh, wow. You can't do anything. You can't replace them. You have to have them. Just because they are cheap doesn't mean they are not important. They're essential. Yep. You need all of the parts. You need all of the parts. Do you think, um, how would the current chip supply look if there were no trade issues with China? I don't think it has any impact with that. Very little. It would not for the world, but for China, definitely. China is struggling to get high-end chips because of all Mm -hmm. the sanctions. So it would be easy for them, but not for the world. uh, The value chain is not reliant upon China a lot yet. So, for example, if you look at the semiconductor value chain, there are three, four key elements to it. There are the equipments. Majority of it is run by U.S., some Japanese and some Europeans. It's, I'll say it's called, it's, it's a very concentrated group of highly complex companies who create these equipments. They are very difficult to make. Um, are Chinese companies trying to make them? Absolutely, but they are not exporting them. They are, they are actually a net importer of those equipment. Then comes the, your foundries and all. There are not a lot of foundries in uh, China that people rely upon. Majority of them are in, your, uh, in Japan and Korea and Taiwan and Ireland and uh, US. So again, in my opinion, the trade sanctions would not uh, solve your, uh, your chip supplies right now. Uh, although it would be better for the Chinese companies who have struggled to get the chips because of the sanctions, but not the rest of them. It's been driven by demand. That wouldn't change. Okay, so that makes me think about, you know, recently, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but the U.S. Security Council on Artificial Intelligence released a paper on recommendations for what the U.S. should do with regard to um, the trade war with China and sanctions. And one of the things they've recommended is that equipment manufacturers do not sell tools Mm -hmm. to China for manufacturing the higher end node. Um, So with that in mind, I have this question. you know, how does this impact the equipment OEMs it, and does this accelerate China's indigenous development? Um, has So in other words, has the trade war had unintended consequences? Could you say that? Yes, there may be. But we also have to look at what China has said publicly. They want to be self-reliant in this space. So whether you put sanctions on them or not, they are going to make their own equipment anyway. They are committed to doing that. So would has it accelerated maybe uh or would it would they have not done it uh, i don't think so they would have they they have been on this uh, uh path to self resiliency uh, for a very long time and uh, they intend to do that they they've been very public about it they published their white papers on that so how does that impact the oems who are supplying equipment currently supplying equipment to china is that going to impact their business in china for china to be able to be self sufficient Look, at the end of the day, it's a competitive market, right? Um, 
if you have positive profits, others will try to come in there. It's as simple as that. I, I think we make a big deal out of it around policy and trade and all. Yes, those are short-term things. Um, policies can change, relationships can change, but at the end of the day, what doesn't change is the competitive environment. You've got to, as somebody said, it's all about uh, economic stupid. And it's always about economics. If there is money to be made, people will want to make money, whether it's chips or, uh, you know, at some point of time, it was steel or auto or whatever it is, um, even food. Um, you will see competition happening all the time and people wanting to control their destiny as much as they can. When we say people, in this case, it would be countries. Okay. Now, I have one last question that is feels a little bit unrelated, but... Um... So Huawei is releasing a new operating system for cell phones in June. How do you think this will affect Google, Samsung, Apple, et cetera? So we got to understand why they had to do that. They were not allowed to certain uh, allowed to use some of the uh, features in Android, um, despite Android being uh, open source. It's uh, more complicated than just saying it's open source or not. Uh, there are certain proprietary things that Google controls. Uh, they didn't have access to it, so they kind of got stuck. They had to create a new operating system. Um, would everybody want to create their own operating system? Yes, but will they be successful? The answer is no. Now, in this case, Huawei didn't have a choice. They had to create it. Now comes the big question, what's the implication on the other big players, especially um, Apple and uh, Google, who have the two leading operating systems out there in the market? We have to understand how and where Huawei plans to compete and how policies are going to limit or allow them to compete. Uh, and where are the markets they can compete? Could Huawei um, sell their products in US with all the policies that are going on? Probably not, one of the biggest markets. What happens to EU? I don't have a perspective on it, but then comes a lot of uh, you know, emerging countries, third world countries. They are looking for inexpensive products. Uh, would that create a market for them? Absolutely. And uh, that, again, comes back down to it's a, it's a competitive environment. They have to sell their products. They have to create the operating system. Uh, people are not going to buy their product because they have a different operating system until unless they create something great. But at the end of the day, uh, the products are priced in a very different league. So people, there are a lot of people on the planet who can't afford a Samsung or, a, or an Apple. That's probably their annual income. Um, so they're not going to go for that. They're going to look for the low-end products. And if Huawei wants to play there, uh, definitely, uh, that'll be a market they would want to. And that's a market that Samsung and Apple doesn't play in. Well, okay, let's, I think we need to wrap it up here. Um, what I would like to know is how can people access this paper? So this paper is on our website. If you just uh, check on semiconductors or search for semiconductor on our website, you should get to our microsite on semiconductors and pretty much all our thought uh, leadership or our perspectives around semiconductors are listed out there and all our experts are there. And if people have questions, they can reach out to um, whoever they feel can provide a better perspective on these topics. And if someone wanted to consult with you, how would they get a hold of you? They can drop me a note, my first name dot last name at Carney, and happy to talk. Okay, well, I'm gonna make sure these links are in the show notes so people can go and look there on the website, on the 3D Insights podcast website. And I want to thank you very much for joining me today. This was really a fascinating conversation um, and I really enjoy it and hope we can have you back in the future for more uh, topics. Francois, this was a pleasure. Uh, I enjoyed talking to you too and uh, the questions were pretty interesting and they are kind of very relevant 
and even more than that, closer to my heart, having grown as a technologist all my life, uh, I grew up in Motorola. So I used to make cell phones. So these are problems that we dealt with back in the day, and now we are dealing them 20 years later too. There's lots more to come. So tune in next time on the 3D Insights podcast.